This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Guy Biner. Guy is a professor of modern history at Ben Gurion University of the Negev and we're going to be talking to Guy today about his new book, Forgetful Remembering, Social Forgetting and Vernacular Historiography of Rebellion in Ulster, just published by Oxford University Press 2019. Guy, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Before we begin talking about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, as you already mentioned, I'm a professor of history at Ben-Gurion University, which is in Israel, where I teach modern European history, 18th century till the present day, more or less. And I'm interested in various issues. I have a speciality in Irish history. I did my PhD in Dublin at University College Dublin, and I had a postdoc at Trinity College Dublin, I spend time in various Irish study centers in the world. Uh, in addition to that, I have various other interests. I'm interested in the history of terrorism. I'm interested in the history of pandemics and other issues. But more than anything else, I am particularly interested in the history of history and memory, and even more so in the last decade or so in history and forgetting. So I'd say I'm more or less an historian of forgetting nowadays. Now, as you just indicated, Guy, you, you've published a great deal, but the book that we're talking about today, Forgetful Remembrance, has to be one of the biggest history books I've ever seen. It's 700 pages long plus. It's presented in quite a small font. How many words is this project and how long did it take to write? Uh, that, that's a tricky question. The words are big. I mean, it's it's 350,000 words, I think, in terms of words. Uh, and here it's an interesting case because actually the project was, of course, much bigger. Well, not of course, well, it was bigger. And I'd say I took out some of my best bits. So I might be publishing some other things later if I have a mind to get back to it. It took forever to write. <laughs> it took more than a decade. It's a, it, it's a work which required a lot. It's, it's not a light. When I originally envisaged it, I thought I would write something short and meditative uh, about what history and forget history of forgetting means. The assumption was that if you're dealing with forgetting, there are few sources, and therefore you have little to say about it beyond kind of marking gaps of absence. But the more I delved into it, the re I realized that the more work I do, the more field work I do, the more archival work I do, the more library work I do, I kept coming up with so many sources and each one had to be explored. So it became a work of a lifetime in a way, yeah? So it took a long time. And one of the things you talk about so well in this book is that sense of surprise that in an event which is thought to have been forgotten, actually so many traces of memory existed. 
Yeah, well, that's, that is what I'm finding more and more, you see. First of all, I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as forgetting. There is. I'd even say most of history was forgotten. Most of what happened in the past, if we mean what happened in the past, has been completely forgotten and can't be reconstructed in any way. And that, surprisingly, actually has little interest for historians because we have no way of actually reconstructing it in any way. I'm looking here at the exceptions, and we think the exceptions are memory. In a way, yes, but memory is one type of exception. There's also other things. There are things that we think we forgot. We marked as forgetting. We talk about forgetting whole episodes in history. Those are the episodes worth delving into. And in particular, I'm interested in episodes which are embarrassing, episodes which societies and communities try to forget on purpose. Now, we have episodes which people say, and, and that's actually quite common in memory studies, people say memory is more about the present than about the past. And that's kind of a dictum, almost an axiom. And I like to question that, because if so, if it's only about the present, then things which are not convenient in the present should have been completely forgotten. And these are the cases that interest me in quite a few case studies that I'm doing. And in this case, in this book, the idea was to find something which I was told all the time has been forgotten. And the more I delved into it, I kind of looked under the hood of forgetting. And that's where you discover a whole other form of remembrance, which all the time engages with forgetting. So, so that's, that's the area where I explore. And that's where I found a huge richness of sources. I was really struck, especially in the conclusion of the book, Guy, when you talk about some of the most recent uh, historical work on the history of Ulster, for example. One very prominent book, which came out a number of years ago, of several hundred pages in length. And yet the events that you describe here, over 350,000 words, are referred to, I think, in passing in only two sentences in that other book. It's an extraordinary striking example of the way in which historians can forget some things, and yet social remembering or social forgetting can function in quite different ways. You use this title, or, or this, this term, social forgetting, um, to, to, uh, as a really vital part of your argument. What does this term mean, and how does it fit into scholarship about the history of memory? Well, there's two things here. I'll first just comment on the first point that you made there. A lot of this has to do with the gap between historiography, official historiography, and other forms of history writing. And that's crucial, but we can get to that a bit later. Uh, but definitely historians often belittle events. They marginalize events. That doesn't mean they've been forgotten. We've got to remember that, keep that in mind. But let's get back to the key conceptual point. First of all, we can get to the methodology and historiography a bit later. Social forgetting is a term which I've coined more or less, and I put it in contrast to social remembrance and social memory, which is a more common term. And on purpose, I choose social forgetting, and I contrast it to social memory, and not to cultural memory, and not to collective memory, which are two other terms which we hear quite a lot about. So I need to kind of map this out for you a minute, if I may. Um, a lot of work has been done in the last two, three decades, three decades now, on collective memory. And collective memory is a term which I feel very uncomfortable with. I've read most of what's been written, over though we're talking about tens of thousands of titles, and I've tried to keep abreast with as much as possible. But collective memory also entails a certain illusion in the term itself, in the associations. The association is that a society gathers together to commemorate and to remember something. And rarely does it have this kind of homogeneity. It's always a struggle. Anybody who studies memory knows it's always conflicted. It's always contested. So how collective is it? And the other point I have a problem with collective memory is that it often has this model of top down. Uh, the government or authorities or uh, various people in power uh, try to commemorate events. And supposedly that's distilled to the population. I don't quite buy into that. 
The other model is, of course, grassroots memory, memory coming bottom up. And it's not that doesn't quite work either. So things are more complicated. So that's my problem with collective memory. Cultural memory, a term which is much more in vogue in the last decade or so, um, is also a very powerful term, but also highly problematic because it privileges uh, texts, monuments, um, paintings, various cultural representations. But that's not memory. There's no memory in a statue. There's no memory in a book. There's no memory in a picture. The memory is how people interact with it. So we need something a bit more dynamic. Hence my preference for the term social memory and social remembrance, which I've been engaging with for quite a while now. But the next step is where's the other side of this? If we acknowledge that there's much more forgetting going on than remembering, then of course there's an equivalent to social memory, and that's social forgetting. But that's even more complicated, so I need to walk you through this one. I'm looking here, as I mentioned before, at deliberate attempts to forget or to disremember events that happened in the past, events which are embarrassing, awkward, not pleasant, not convenient to remember at the moment. And just as I believe that my problem with collective memory is it's not, it's completely manipulated maybe, but it's not as simple as it seems. It's not that you can just switch it on and off like a light bulb. In the same way, you can't just turn memory off. You can't just say we forget from now on, it's been forgotten. There's been attempts from ancient times. We know of a dynamic which is referred to in the classics as damnatio memoriae, the notion that already in the Roman Empire, if you wanted to strike somebody off the record, you smashed his statues and you kind of wiped him out of the, of the record. But you still found these things. You still found records of him being eliminated. Therefore, he was still remembered. So the point is, the more you dig under it, you find traces of remembrance before it was eliminated, while it was being eliminated. It becomes a kind of dynamic in itself. Now, once I look into that, I also realize that just like memory has a history, also forgetting has a history. There's a history of attempts and repeated attempts to forget an episode. And that creates a dynamic in itself. It creates a dynamic which is a form of remembrance, actually. That's the paradox. So if I have to put in a nutshell all of this, I think what I'm looking at is at the tension and at the dialectics, uh, at the dissonance between public declarations of forgetting episodes, historical episodes, and more private and more local uh, discourses which keep remembering going or practices of remembrance which are less noticed. And it's this dynamic which we need to tease out. When something is officially supposed to be forgotten, or it's neglected, as you say, by the historians, or give it a sentence or two in history books, and yet there's a memory for it. We need to find sources and methods how to grapple with that. And that opens a whole new path in memory studies, and I believe in history writing. And that helps us understand the main title of your book, Guy, Forgetful Remembrance. The subtitle is also quite interesting, Social Forgetting and Vernacular Historiography of Rebellion in Ulster. It's quite a euphemistic title and you've got a very interesting passage early on in the book where you talk about euphemism as a site of embarrassment. What is this rebellion in Ulster that, that you gesture towards that becomes the case study you want to work through? Very good indeed. Well, it relates to the, seven, the Great Rebellion of 1798, as it's currently called in historiography. Um, for those who are less familiar with Irish history, I'll explain it very briefly. And of course, by explaining it very briefly, it will be very inaccurate because it takes time to explain an elaborate event. But if we return back to the age of Atlantic revolutions, to the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and other revolutionary activities throughout Europe and even Haiti, um, in Ireland, there was an attempt of a rebellion, perhaps a revolution, run by the Society of United Irishmen. And it had various arenas. 
And each one of them is engraved in many ways in Irish memory. It's the major event. It's the largest uh, blood spilling, uh, the most violent event in late modern Irish history from the 18th century onwards. And like I say, it had different arenas and it had a different character in each place. I've written before about the social remembrance and the folk history of the rebellion in the west of Ireland, where there was a French revolutionary invasion to help the United Irishmen, which was the secret society, a Republican secret society, which tried to run this rebellion. But this book focuses on one very specific arena. It focuses on Ulster and the northeast of Ireland, specifically on counties Antrim and Down. What makes the rebellion interesting there is, first of all, this was the cradle of this revolutionary attempt. This is where the Society of the United Irishmen, the secret society of the United Irishmen was founded, specifically in Belfast and around it. And its backbone were Presbyterians, often called at the time dissenters. Now, the society was open to, as famously expressed, to Protestants, Catholics, and dissenters. It was both for Anglicans and various other types of Protestants, Presbyterians included, and Catholics. But its founding members and the communities um, in Antrim and Down were primarily Presbyterian. Now, this is important to understand this, because Presbyterians had a very special uh, position in Ulster at the time. They had an Ulster-Scots background. Most of them come from immigration in Scotland from the 17th century onwards. They have a very special place in between, as an in-between kind of culture with its own dialect um, and its own historical traditions. Now, what's interesting is the Presbyterians, as I say, were at the heart of this rebellion, other Protestants joined them and Catholics joined them in large numbers. But once the rebellion was suppressed, the Act of Union was passed and the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, currently called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, was formed. This happened in 1800, 1801. It comes, it, the, United, the UK begins its history. And what's interesting is within a period, perhaps longer than we thought, but within a relatively short period, a process begins in which those very same Presbyterian communities which were implicated in a Republican rebellion against the crown uh, change their politics. At least officially, whole communities move towards loyalism, unionism. They support the United Kingdom and even adopt Orangism. This is where the big centers, the bastions of the Orange Order are in counties Antrim and down up till today. Um, so we have an interesting situation. We have communities that have a loyalist identity for more than two centuries, and even a loyalist past before that. But they have this embarrassing episode when they look back at which they were Republican, in which they joined sides which are now, they're in conflict with. And so there was a motivation and interest to kind of efface this episode, to wipe it out of memory, not to put it into history. This is where social forgetting begins. That's at the core of it. And here we need to find a methodology to uncover this and understand it. So in, in the book, you describe this massive bloodletting as an extraordinarily traumatic experience, which happens really over the space of, what, a week or 10 days in June 1798, and almost immediately is forgotten. But how do you, as an historian, paying attention to theoretical models and appropriate methodological approaches, how do you go about reconstructing the ways in which it was forgotten, even back in the early 19th century? Well, we have to be very, very careful about when we say it was forgotten. Again, it's this gap between the public and the private. 
Publicly, we hear it's forgotten. Publicly, it's not all right to talk about it. And even that's not true because things appear in different places. But the question is where it's spoken about, how it's spoken about, often spoken about in hushed terms, in muted forms. We have to tune our ears to listen to other kind of discourses. And for this, I need to explain to you perhaps another term before we actually look at what's happening in the early 19th century. We need to understand the other part of the subtitle that you read out. Social forgetting, I've explained briefly, but the other side of it, which is crucial, is vernacular historiography. See, in a previous book, I used the term folk history, and I've written a lot about Irish folk history because Irish, Ireland has a long tradition of folklore, a very rich oral tradition. But I've moved a bit beyond that, and I've rethought the term. Folk history privileges the oral tradition and orality, but Ulster specifically, and this is crucial, um, was a very literate province the most literate in Ireland, very high rates of literacy uh, already from the 18th century throughout the 19th century. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, we have almost full literacy. 95 of the population are literate. Um, and this changes things. We have an interplay. I see this in other societies as well, but in Ulster, it's particularly prominent between literacy and orality. Not only that, when I talk about vernacular historiography, we also have other sources we can use, visual sources, uh, material culture, and around all of these things, there's always this interplay with orality, stories told about uh, souvenirs, about relics uh, from the battle, um, about pictures from the battle, various, uh, various representations of it. So all of this plays together. But why do I call it vernacular historiography? Because in many ways, it passes under the radar of official history. And this is quite remarkable. Every few years, somebody will travel through Ulster, somebody local will collect local traditions of this rebellion in 1798 and will document it. And once I began finding this, then suddenly I began compiling this alternative archive, which leads us through from the time of the events, even before the events, through the time of the events, throughout the long 19th century, throughout the 20th century, constantly there's people recording various forms of muted remembrance, of silent remembrance, of what's happening underneath, of how people still remember in an embarrassed way, always kind of hid are always kind of hidden and under a facade of forgetting. So what we have here is a historiography. It's not even a vernacular history. It's a historiography, often in local dialect, often through euphemisms, as you mentioned. Now, we can go back to the time of the events and say at the time of the events themselves, immediately there had to be a silence afterwards. People were hunted down. They were executed. One of the big things that I noticed while writing, looking at the history of the events before I looked at the memory was that it was a much more violent event than people gave it credit Historiography tried to belittle the event. That was a political project. The rebellion in Ulster was short, but it was very bloody. And the price the rebels played was huge. There was a huge amount of uh, executions, uh, very violent. And this was an attempt to kind of wipe out memory in one level. Um, but afterwards, memory begins creeping out in different forms. And that's where social forgetting begins. Now, you show in the book how Presbyterian political loyalties pivot uh, in almost the immediate aftermath of 1798 to, to lend increasing support to this new project of the United Kingdom. Over the course of the 19th century, how does that develop, this process of social forgetting and remembering, especially in the run-up to the centenary of these events in 1898? All right. Well, like I said, there's an interesting history here. If we go back to the immediate aftermath of the events, a lot of attempt is the, uh, 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 an attempt is made to cover up the rebellion, at least for outsiders. Just to give one example of the initial kind of covering up, 
one of the remarkable things I did is I, I, try, oh, I found is I tried to look for graveyards. Now, most of the rebels were buried in pits, um, in mass graves. Without, there's only folklore about where these places are and an incredible amount of folklore. But in some cases I traced, so I tried to find every single grave of a United Irishman which can be identified. And one of the things I found was that you can find these graves, but they don't identify that they were engaged in a rebellion, of course. In some cases, even the dates were changed. So people wouldn't know when they look at the grave that this person had been executed in a rebellion, even though we know he was. So there's a cover-up. And the cover-up happens in different ways. In the early 19th century, how do people engage with this memory? In different forms. One of the remarkable forms is through poetry. Poetry in Ulster Scots, in the local dialect. It's a dialect which you need to make an effort to understand. It might, the authorities might not even have noticed it. And so there's a whole tradition of rhyming weavers who write verses of poetry about the rebellion and hide it, always in an uncomfortable way. You'll find poets who write about the fact that you shouldn't write about the rebellion, and still they write about it. They kind of, they, they cover it up as they write about it. And these are remarkable works of poetry. In other forms, you'll find works of literature actually written. I mean, if there's novels, you think there's memory, but it's novels which at the same time cover up the story while they're writing about it. It's both writing about it and also trying to forget it at the same time. And again, these are aspects of social forgetting. Throughout the 19th century, there have always been antiquarians who have looked around and tried to uncover these traditions. And even they had a conflicted identity. I mean, a good example would be, for example, a man called Samuel McSkimmon. Samuel McSkimmon had been at the time of the rebellion. He had been on the loyalist side. And he was uncomfortable what he had to do. He had friends who he was engaged in fighting against. He went afterwards to visit their graves as he wrote pseudonymously. He didn't want even people to identify what he had done. He went to his dying grave with a secret, which was terrible for him, that he had taken part in burning down a library in which he had actually learned how to read. So it was a very unpleasant event for him, and he was obsessed with this rebellion. And he would travel around Ulster and collect stories. He'd ply people with drink and collect their stories and their songs to write a book about it, but he could never bring himself to publish this book. And when he did write histories of Ulster, he kept writing he kept skipping this episode. At first, he gave it a sentence. Then he gave it a couple of sentences, then a paragraph, but never actually wrote about it. And when his work did come out, it was only after he died when this manuscript was found. So these kind of things happened throughout the 19th century. Towards the end of the 19th century, there's an opening up. And this is where the centenary that you asked about is happening. In general, Irish nationalism is celebrating increasingly from the mid-19th century, is celebrating Irish cultural nationalism, is celebrating the rebellion in 1798. And it's being co-opted by Republicans. This makes it even more uneasy for Unionists and Loyalists. The fact that they had a grandparent in the rebellion who they want to remember, who they do remember, and yet they can't celebrate in public that memory because it'll be seen as if they're identifying with their opponents, the Republicans, the Nationalists. This is what creates the tensions. So in 1898, Nationalist Ireland throughout Ireland, throughout the Irish diaspora, celebrates in huge commemorations the 1798 rebellion, its centenary. But Unionists and Loyalists have a problem with that. Some of them are looking for a middle way. Some of them are looking for ways to commemorate, but I'd say more liberal unionists who want to uphold this tradition of 1798. But others are actually very militant against it. And so here we enter another dynamic of social forgetting, and that's what I call decommemorating. Decommemorating is a dynamic which we're very familiar with in modern history, even though it hasn't been examined properly. It's the smashing of monuments. It's the attacking of commemoration. It's when commemoration is celebrated by one side, it troubles other people. 
And we can think of countless examples all the way up to today. Everywhere we look around in the United States, you could look at the removal of statues of the Confederacy. You can look at statues of uh, communist uh, era in, in Eastern Europe. You can look at many cases. What happens in Ulster is remarkable. Um, there is an attempt to commemorate 1798. And local communities are willing to indulge it to a certain extent. But when they realize that this becomes a nationalist celebration, often by Catholics, um, there are problems. And so the huge riots begin. And the best example is that the only monument, public monument to a, a, a United Irish woman, United uh, Irish woman, Betsy Gray, a local hero of uh, County Down, is smashed to pieces. There are riots when people try to commemorate in Belfast. And these riots go on for more than a month. So there's an attempt to stamp out memory. Maybe just to conclude with this point, the remarkable thing about decommemorating when you explore it deeply is it looks like an attempt to wipe out memory. It looks like another act of forgetting. But as always, social forgetting is tricky. It's puzzling. It's paradoxical. When you look under it, you realize that by attacking memory, by smashing monuments, you actually create memory. It becomes a memorable event. Not only that, it's always, at least in this case, uh, tinged with ambiguity. People smash the monument for Betsy Gray, this local folk heroine, and then they take home the bits and pieces of stone from the monument to keep them as souvenirs. It's about claiming the memory for themselves and keeping it in the home and not letting it become a public property in the public domain and being reclaimed by others. So there are lots of struggles about how to commemorate, how to remember, and how to enforce by various vigilantes, I'd say, social forgetting. Your book is, is, is very attuned to the ambiguities of this historical performance guy. But how does that, how does that change or develop as uh, the troubles emerge uh, in the 1950s, flowing right the way through into the 1970s, 80s, 90s? And then obviously, how does it coincide with the bicentenary of uh, the 1798 rebellion and the Good Friday Agreement, which both of which occurred in 1998. Yep. Well, I think we have to look at another key point here is actually 1920 and 1922. The partition of Ireland is crucial. You see, before partition, there was an attempt to actually revive memory. After the centenary and all the violence of the centenary, there still were attempts to try and reclaim 1798 by various liberal Presbyterians. A very important antiquarian in this context is a man called Francis Joseph Bigger, who inspired many to go and look for this memory and collect it. Um, but when partition happens, when the state of Northern Ireland is formed and its ethos is a unionist ethos, then it's quite clear that the memory of 1798 has to go underground again. In fact, it's prescribed in many ways. You cannot commemorate 1798 officially in Northern Ireland. And this continues for quite a while. And various attempts, and it's always brought up by nationalists, by liberals, uh, the desire, and there's always attempts to stop it. But after a while, it seems like in the 60s, there's a liberalization. Uh, and it seems like it'll be possible to commemorate already in 1948, in fact, the 150th anniversary. So these, these memories kind of creep out. These attempts at commemoration creep out. And once again, they always cause they always cause tension. The government doesn't know quite what to do with them. There are various attempts by communities who feel that they can bring out these local secrets of theirs. Stories like the heroine that I mentioned, Betsy Gray, a newspaper serialize a famous novel about her, and it becomes at least local knowledge, which is shared. People bring out their um, souvenirs that they have at home, and they share them um, among themselves, and it becomes common knowledge within communities, the secret. 
The troubles changes that. At the end of the 60s, when violence erupts again in full force in Northern Ireland, it's a problem, specifically since the Republicans identify with the story of the United Irishmen. They champion the memory of 1798 and of these rebels, and therefore unionists and loyalists see it as subversive, see it as dangerous. So there's again a shutting up, this silencing. A lot of the story is about silencing, about reticence, about not speaking in public. And those are the years of the Troubles. Even during the years of the Troubles, it's remarkable to find how there are always remarkable silence breakers. In every society, when silence is enforced by the authorities and by below, there are always people who will speak out. Various authors, playwrights who will write plays, uh, poems, subtle pieces of work, people like John Hewitt, for example, and there are many others who write remarkable pieces of work which come out and trouble this kind of culture of silence. All this seems to come to a happy end, supposedly, in 1998. 1998 is the bicentenary of 1798, the rebellion, but it's also, as you mentioned, the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, a huge time of optimism, of signing of peace, of putting an end to troubles. And it seems almost as if the vision of the United Irishmen for a common uh, a commonwealth of Catholics and Protestants coming together seems to be happening. And in this feeling of euphoria, it seems that for once, all these memories, which had always been driven underground, which each time they were commemorated, met with decommemorating, could come out. Presbyterian communities um, throughout Antrim and Down, also adjacent parts of Derry, Londonderry, celebrated their 1798 traditions in 1998. So it seemed that forgetting had come to an end. But even that is misleading. Even that's misleading because you can, if you look carefully, if you do ethnographic research on what happened in 1998, you can already then see the fissures, the cracks, the moments of, uncomfortable, of, of uncomfortableness, of ambivalence. And this would play out later. Later, there'd be a backlash to this. So there's a kind of a moment where things are coming out, but it's not the final chapter in this longer history, developing history, which begins before 1798 and continues after 1798 of a culture of social forgetting. As you look at the long history of memory and forgetting of 1798, Guy, do, do you perceive that the, the meaning of the events have changed? The meaning of events always changes in history. You always look and re-examine them in new contexts. Uh, 1798 has always been a radical shibboleth, if you wish, for um, politics in Northern Ireland and in Ireland in general. It's always controversial, it always comes to the fore, it can always be interpreted, but it's also signified this kind of space for many people of an alternative to what's become engrounded of these kind of conflicts between uh, conservative unionism and uh, extremist or militant republicanism. And in between we find different shades. And it's been a space always for liberal unionism in many ways, liberal unionism which meets a more liberal nationalism. And so this interpretation has come out time and time again in different ways. What's remarkable about the case of 1798 is the people who engaged in its forgetful remembrance, in this kind of culture of social forgetting, were both Catholics and Protestants. They were both unionists and nationalists of different hues and different colors and different shades. So it could mean different things for different people and they could engage with it. So it's actually, if there's one inherent characteristic that it has, it's, it's ambivalence. And this ambivalence, in a way, is what keeps it going. Because memory dies when it no longer has meaning. We think when we set up a monument for a national hero, that monument will stay forever. But it'll, 
inevitably crumble at some stage. One day it'll become a piece of white noise. People just pass by the monument, not even look at it. It'll be a place where pigeons stay. Uh, but actually, social forgetting is something more remarkable. This notion of not speaking about something in public and speaking about it privately. And from time to time, it kind of emerges into public and then is pushed back again. It keeps it all the time with a certain tension. And this tension sustains itself. That's why I think we have here something which is far deeper than the culture in Ulster, which is very typical for Ulster. And there's social forgetting not only of 1798 in Northern Ireland, also of other episodes. But it's something which you can find in many other societies. So it's a remarkable dynamic and a very fertile ground for historians. Well, Guy, thanks for coming on to the show to, to share your work with us today. Forgetful Remembrance, Social Forgetting and Vernacular Historiography of Rebellion in Ulster, just published by Oxford University Press. Surely one of the most important contributions to Irish historiography I have ever read. Certainly one of the very longest, crammed in its 700 pages with facts, with new insights, with new kinds of sources, with new lines of inquiry, structured around a really exciting new theoretical methodological approach. It's a great book, Guy, and thank you so much for writing it. Thank you very much. And before we wind up the interview, could you tell us what you're working on next? Well, I'm still engaged with forgetting in many forms, but for years now, while I was working on this project as well, I've been obsessed with Spanish influenza, the great influenza pandemic of 1918-1919. And I'm obsessed with it because it happened... It's Around the time, just after the Great War, the First World War, it killed a mass amount of people around the world. It's the largest catastrophe ever in history. And yet it's never been commemorated, at least not till now, till the centenary. And there's a whole history of social forgetting of the Great Flu. So I'm engaged in the social forgetting and the rediscovery of the Great Flu on a global scale. Well, that sounds fantastic. I look forward to seeing that come out in due course. Um, thanks for coming on to the show today, Guy. Thanks for your time and take care. And thanks to everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. <laughs>